Our scripture reading today will be taken from Romans chapter 2. If you'd open your Bibles there, please, to Romans chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to the end of the chapter, verse 29, as we continue on in this book of Romans. Paul is establishing the guilt of everyone. I want you to notice the repetition that will occur nine, ten times of that noun law, the law referring to the Old Testament law. Follow along as I read, beginning at verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the scriptures this morning and to the exposition of it to follow Later, will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Father, we bow before thee this day and we thank you for, for everything. We thank you that we have a new day that we can live in and worship in. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you that your mercies are new every day. We thank you for your provisions, for your protection. We certainly want to thank you for your grace. We pray that our lives would glorify thee. We pray that you would grant us thy wisdom and grant us thy strength and certainly grant us thy guidance. Grant us the privilege and honor of finishing life in a way that would be pleasing to the unashamed. We would especially pray that you grant comfort to those who need it. We want to pray for Susan Beck and the death of Dennis. We thank you that he's now with thee, but we understand the sting of all of this, having gone through these kinds of things. We pray you grant her thy peace, grant the family thy peace. We pray you grant healing to those who need it. We are grateful for the successful surgeries that took place this week. We thank you for that. We pray that the healing will be swift and complete for Hank and Becky and Dennis. We want to pray for Mary's surgery tomorrow. We ask that it will be successful. You'll remove all cancer forever. We pray for those who are struggling with health issues, Lord, and we have many. We look at that Wednesday night prayer list, and we gather together and we pray for that every single Wednesday night. It's massive. And we realize, Lord, that there are people connected to this fellowship that are 
walking through some very difficult things in life, and only you can help them, and really, in all reality, only you can heal them. You can use doctors and medicines as part of the process, but you're the sovereign God. We pray you would heal them and you would help them. Lord, we pray for our government. We pray for our government and leaders at all levels of government. Please, Lord, do not abandon their minds. We would ask you bend their minds. Cause them to think in ways that will be beneficial for thy people. Cause them to make decisions that are consistent with thy word and will. We see in this very text that we've read in Romans this morning that people don't automatically think right when it comes to you and when it comes to your word and when it comes to salvation. So we would ask that you would use your sovereign power to turn their minds in ways that are consistent with your word and will. And we ask that you would use this powerful book of Romans to save people, Lord. You've given us the gospel of God. Paul's revealing it in this book, and we pray that you use this book to save people. Use this text to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in the early 80s, the leaders of our local church north of Grand Rapids asked me if I would be willing to head up an evangelistic outreach program to our little area that we lived in, and I agreed to do it. In fact, this is one way God taught me my gift is certainly not evangelism. I broke the area down into blocks. I subdivided streets, and then I had a card for each home with each address on it, and our plan was that we would take one night a week and go door to door and talk to people and then kind of make notes and document the responses we got and form a plan to perhaps better minister to people in reaching them. One evening, I and another man from our church knocked on the door of a very nice home and an elderly, stately woman came to the door. And we introduced ourselves as being from our church and we said we wanted to give her a personal invitation to come. And this woman very proudly said, well, I've been a good person and a religious person for years. In fact, I've been a member of my church for years. And we were happy to hear that. So then we said, well, when was it that you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior? All of a sudden, the look in her face changed. She got this haughty, almost arrogant look on her face. And she said, pointing with her finger, you see that house over there? And we go, yeah. Well, they're the bad sinners. They're the ones that really need to hear what you have to say. I don't need it. And with that, she slammed the door in her face. I learned a very significant lesson that day. And the lesson that I learned is, you know, religious people, they can get real proud of their religion. They can be real proud of their church, proud of their works, and they don't even see the need, the need to believe in Jesus Christ to save them. There are people who delusionally see themselves as being free from condemnation. There are people that delusionally convince themselves that they're proud because they're religious. I mean, religious people are proud of their denomination. They're proud of their church membership, the rituals. They appeal to that. They talk about that. They're proud of the catechism. They're proud of their tithing and confirmation. In fact, there are some people who would rather rely upon that. They'd rather rely upon their baptism or their beads rather than Jesus Christ. What religious people don't seem to realize and understand is none of that stuff saves them. None of that stuff will get them into heaven. You see, because 
What Paul's developing in this book of Romans is we all need the righteousness of God judicially imputed to us. And the only way to get the righteousness of God judicially imputed to us is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's no respecter of persons. So unless you have the righteousness of God that he imputes to you, we're all condemned. Religious or non-religious, we're all condemned. And that is the point that Paul is establishing in this part of the book of Romans. What he's basically saying here is it makes no difference how religious a person is without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That person is guilty and condemned in the sight of God. Let's put this into your own personal world. You could have been a very religious person all your life. You could have embraced religion. I mean, you could have had the training and the schooling of your religion. You could have been a Catholic, a Mormon, a Muslim, a Baptist, a Christian, Reformed, an Episcopalian, a Methodist, or a Presbyterian. Doesn't matter. Without Jesus Christ in your life, you're guilty and condemned before God because you don't have the righteousness of God. And the only way to get the righteousness of God is through faith in him. It can only be found in him. And many religious people are going to end up in hell. There'll be a lot of religious people who will end up in hell who knew a lot about Jesus Christ, but they did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself said that. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. And the Lord says, I'll declare to them I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, there will be a lot of people who will get, I'm convinced, into eternity thinking, well, I'm a good person. I mean, I was honest and polite and kind, and I was compassionate and generous and ambitious, and I was responsible and dependable, and I was respectful. I was fair with people. And God says, you don't get it, do you? Unless you have the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, you are continually living a life of lawlessness that is established by the Old Testament, and you are continually being condemned by that Old Testament law. The tragedy is that there are people that promote that all religion's good. All religion's good. Truth is, there's condemnation in all religion. Because religion can't save anybody from their sins. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And that is the theological point that Paul is trying to drive home in this part of the book of Romans. And there are three critical theological realities that he brings out in this text he wants every person to understand. First of all, a person's guilt is not eliminated by their religious heritage. Verse 17, but if you bear the name Jew... And rely upon the law and boast in God. Now, when Paul wrote Romans, the group that really was known for trusting in their religion, there were a lot of religions, Greek polytheism, Roman polytheism, but the group that was known for really trusting in their religion and heritage was the religious Jew. They were the ones who opposed Jesus Christ. They were the ones who opposed grace. I mean, when Jesus started telling people they're saved by grace, then Paul said they were saved by grace. That angered them. They were proud of themselves. They were proud of their religion. They were proud of their works. 
I mean, these people regularly went to their worship services. They tied. They tried to follow the Old Testament law, a few of the Old Testament law codes and the traditions of men. And what Paul does here is he gives a list of some things that these people were trusting in. Some have suggested there are five. I think there are six. There were six religious reliances that these people depended on. In fact, that word rely that shows up there in verse 17 is a Greek word that indicates these people were leaning on this. They were heavily trusting this to save them. That's what these people heavily relied upon to save them. And the first reliance is they relied on their religious heritage. You bear the name Jew. These Jews were relying upon the fact we are ethnic descendants of Abraham. And there's no question that it's a privilege to be a Jew. It's a great privilege to be connected to Jewish people. I mean, they do have quite a legacy when it comes to their relationship with God. And Paul is really going to go after the Jews here, which he himself, by the way, was. I mean, you read that text of Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 to 9, when he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He lists all the stuff he did. I consider it dung. Now, there were a lot of Jews that were alive at the time that Paul wrote this, and those Jews depended upon their religious heritage to earn them heaven. They knew that they were the nation of God. They'd been selected as the nation of God. We could say it this way. The Jews that were alive back in Paul's day knew about the doctrine of election. Very much they knew about the doctrine of election. God had elected that nation to be his people. And these people believed that because they were Jewish, that automatically gave them a right status when it came to God. Well, you still hear that kind of thing. We're Reformed. We're Christian Reformed. We're Baptist. We're Presbyterian. We're Catholic. We're Episcopalian. Things haven't changed much in the religious world. There are people who rely on their religious upbringing and church membership as a basis for thinking they're right with God. I mean, there are many people who think that their link to some church or some denomination means they're in a right relationship with God. Well, I've always gone to church. Okay, that's good. You've always gone to church. But when did you receive the righteousness of God imputed to you that you need to go to heaven? When did you get that? When did that moment occur? But there are people that rely on their religious heritage. They'd rather do that. Secondly, these proud religious people sure rely on the Old Testament law. That's what verse 17 says. In fact, as we mentioned, nine to ten times, as we pointed out in Scripture reading this morning, that noun law is used. There are people, many people, who truly believe they're going to get into heaven because of their feeble attempts to keep the Old Testament law. They really believe that. People think if they obey the legal mandates of the Old Testament law, that is going to guarantee them everlasting life. And they've somehow convinced themselves that they've met the standard of whatever law standard they've conceived in their own minds. In fact, no one has ever met the standard of law except Jesus Christ, but somehow these people convince themselves they have. If a person trusts in their Old Testament law-keeping, To make them right with God, they're trusting in the wrong thing, and the Old Testament law is never going to give anyone everlasting life. And most Jews felt, because we have kept the Old Testament law, we're good to go. What they didn't realize is that Old Testament law is condemning every one of them. 
The third reliance they had is these proud religious people rely on their boasting. I mean, they like to boast. They boast about their relationship with God. Now, boasting in God in Christ is a good thing. In fact, the Apostle Paul says we boast in the Lord. That is our boast in the Lord. But that's not what they were boasting in. They were boasting in a relationship they had with God because they said they kept the law. And when it comes to religion, people can talk a really good game. I mean, they love to brag and boast about their relationship with God. They love to talk about how they're really something in the church. The Jews of Paul's day bragged about their connection to God. They could recite history stories, Bible stories of the nation Israel. But that's not the same as having the righteousness of God that's given to you by God because you came to faith in Jesus Christ. There are many people today, they do the same thing. They boast about their religion. They boast about their church connection, their denomination. They boast about legalistic works as proof that they're right with God. We don't go to the prom. We don't go to a movie or the opera or a concert or ball games. We don't even hardly watch TV. We don't go to the beach. I mean, there are people that actually think that somehow that's going to merit them heaven. But none of that gives anybody the righteousness of God. None of that. And even though these proud religious lost people were boasting in what they kept from the law, they weren't right with God. The fourth reliance is they relied upon their knowledge. Verse 18 said, and know his will. That's an interesting statement there. These people gained knowledge out of the word of God about what God's will was, and somehow they convinced themselves that they met the standard. They had knowledge of this. And the word knowledge, gnosko, is a word that talks about, they would tell people, well, look what we've experienced in life. It proves it. Our experiences of what we've seen in life proves that we're right with God. And they knew about their religion. They knew about their religious teachings. They were proud of that. They could recite things from their own life that proves they're right with God. I mean, people today get proud of stuff. People are proud of Christmas programs. People dress up in their finery at Easter time with all this knowledge of religion. They're proud of that. But that's not the same as having the righteousness of God imputed to you through Jesus Christ. Paul says, you've got knowledge, all right, but it's not the right kind of knowledge. Then these proud religious people were people who relied on their instruction. Verse 18 said, and you're being instructed out of the law. I mean, the word instruct is catechism, from which we get our English word catechism. These people could say, we've been through the catechism. We've been through the catechism of the law. We've had the indoctrination. We've had the teaching. And that means we're right with God. And there are people today, they invent their little, you know, courses. Well, I went through this discipleship course. I'm right with God. I took this training seminar. I went on this weekend retreat. That means I'm right with God. I've had the instruction. These guys had thoroughly been indoctrinated with their religion. They could recite commandments and traditions of men. That is not the same as having Jesus Christ in the life. Years ago, when I taught at the Grand Rapids School of the Bible and Music, there was a girl who stood up and gave her testimony. 
She had actually won competitions for memorizing Bible verses. She had won competitions. She said, I had never really trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I could memorize the stuff. I memorized the verses. I won. She, got, she had trophies to prove it. But she had never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and received the righteousness of God. She said, I relied upon my, as it were, instruction, just like these people. The sixth reliance is these lost people rely upon themselves. There are people that see themselves as really being right with God. I mean, that's how they assess themselves. And there are four false assessments here that they made of themselves. They saw themselves as a guide to the blind. Verse 19, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. That's how they saw themselves. They saw, you know, we're the ones who can really lead people in the right way to go. Now, I got to tell you this story about the former guy in our church. I love this guy. He was an old guy who, when he got out of college, he went to work for the government laying out roads. In fact, some of the expressways out there in the West, like I-80 and part of I-80 and I-15, are roads that he actually laid out to get through that country, get through those mountains. He was just an interesting man. He came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He got in our church, and I just love listening to him talk and tell stories. He one time had, see, Pocatello was Mormon-controlled. 75% of Pocatello was Mormon. And at one time, he had two Mormons come to his house. This is after he had trusted the Lord. But he was an older man, and he had two Mormons come to his house and say, you know, we noticed you made this much money last year. He thought, how'd they even know how much I made? He said, and here's what you owe the church. He said to him, you've got 30 seconds to get out of my house or I'll throw you both through the window. I like that. I like that guy. I like that guy. There is a mountain range just south of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, called the Grovant Wilderness. And he decided to go on an elk hunt in the Grovant Wilderness. And he hired a guide to take him into the wilderness. He said, we got into the mountains, and all of a sudden, this started to snow. And I mean, it was snowing. You could not see your hand in front of your face. So he said, the guide said to him, I think we need to get back to camp. And he said, he starts going and he says, hey, wait a minute, you're going the wrong way. So that's not the way back to camp. He said, we should be going this way back to camp. He said, we couldn't see, but he said, I, I felt we were going the wrong way. The guy goes, oh, no, 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 no. I know what I'm doing. I know where we're going. He got them lost in the mountains for three days, three days. They had military out looking for them. They finally found them. They actually came out. It's an interesting dimension of mountain range. They came out on the Grovant River, which is probably 40, 50 miles to the north of where they originally went in. They survived by hunkering down in the snow for three days. They shot a moose because they had to have something to eat, and they cooked that. That guy got them lost for three days, and he called himself a guide. And Paul says, that's what you got in religion. That's what you have in religion. You got a bunch of guides who are saying that they can lead people, but they're blind. They don't even know where they're going. They don't know where they're heading. They don't even know the truth of the word of God. And these people that are religious actually see themselves as being a guide to those that are blind. The second false assessment is they saw themselves as one who gives light 
to those in darkness. They saw themselves as being those who could really turn on the light in the dark world. I mean, these religious Jews saw themselves as a real light to the dark Gentiles. They saw their promotion of religion to others as being something that would really turn on the light bulbs for them. Thirdly, they saw themselves as an instructor of the foolish. That's what he says in verse 20. That's how they saw the people. We are a teacher of the immature, an instructor of the foolish people. See, we're the scholarly people. We know what religion is. We know what the rules are. And we're in a position to instruct you foolish people. It's like these cults. I mean, Jehovah's Witness and Mormons, and they go door to door, and we're the real religious people that are in a position to tell you foolish people what you really need to know. That's the way these Jews were. And they saw themselves as a teacher of those immature. And we are a teacher of the immature, not just a corrector of the foolish, but we're a teacher of the immature. We've arrived at the mature level. You other people haven't, Paul said. You are blind as bats. You don't have the righteousness of God. You've got religion. That's what you've got. You've got a handle on religion. But you need the imputed righteousness of God to you personally if you're going to have everlasting life, and you only get that by faith in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to his second theological reality, and that is a person's guilt is established by his own religious teaching. Verses 21 to 24. You, therefore, who teach another. Now, the teachings and works that Paul's presenting here are teachings and works of proud religious people. And I want us to again remember that Paul at one time had been one of these kinds of people, so he knows what he's talking about. He's lived in this system of religion. He knew exactly what he was saying. And there are six specific works that he brings out here to show that these religious people here are guilty before the Lord by their own religion, by their own works. First of all, people deceive themselves by what they teach others, and they do not teach themselves. That's what he says in verse 21. You teach another, you don't teach yourself. These Jewish leaders, and especially the rabbis and the scribes, they reworked the Old Testament law to fit them. That's what they did. What they did is they replaced it with their own traditions and views. They're still doing that. I knew a man who had a ministry for years to the Jewish people, and he asked the Jews one time, what do you do with passages that say you're supposed to be in Jerusalem and you're supposed to be worshiping at the temple? What do you do with those laws in the Old Testament? Oh, well, it just means we're supposed to be a sacrificial kind of person. That's not what it meant. That's not what it meant. It meant you were actually supposed to go there. You were actually supposed to participate. But you see, what they did is they just reworked laws. So these people would teach other things under a great deception. And the deception was not the ignorance of the truth. It was the rebellion against the truth. These guys were teaching other people, but they weren't teaching themselves the truth. They'd never come to terms with it. Back when I was in school, and we're going back to the early 80s, there was a man who came to our school who gave his testimony. He had been an evangelist who had traveled in the IFCA, Independent Fundamental Church Association, churches, and he had actually conducted evangelistic meetings. 
He had been a pastor of a church for four and a half years. And during that time, he shared truth with people about Jesus Christ. And he actually saw people, he said, come to faith in Jesus Christ. One day he came to the realization, I've never trusted Christ. Here was a guy doing evangelistic crusades and a guy who's been pastoring a church. He said, I came to realize I'm relying on all this religious involvement for my salvation. He said, what I need is a personal relationship myself with Jesus Christ. And he said, I trusted Jesus Christ. And there at that moment, my heart was right with him. That's like the story of John Wesley in the 1700s. I mean, John Wesley was evangelizing people, evangelizing the Indians, and then he came to that statement where he says in his own journals, who's going to convert me? I mean, Wesley wrote in his journals, I went to America to convert Indians, but who's going to convert me? I'm quoting him, what he wrote in his own journal. In other words, he came to realize it's not just teaching others that makes you right with the Lord. You've got to come to terms with this yourself. The second work is people deceive themselves by their teaching and application against stealing. They apparently were telling people not to steal, but they were stealing. I mean, teaching against stealing isn't bad. It's good teaching. I mean, you should teach people that they shouldn't steal. The problem was the people here had stolen truth away from the people, and the leaders were not teaching the people the truth, and they're taking offerings. God said, you're guilty of stealing. You're not feeding the flock the truth. You're guilty of stealing. Thirdly, the people deceived themselves by their teaching and application of adultery. No, teaching against adultery is not bad. It's good, solid, biblical teaching. The problem is the people were guilty themselves. Perhaps physically, perhaps mentally, but they never saw themselves as being sinners who ever committed this kind of sin. I mean, when Jesus was here, he addressed this. If you look on a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So here these people are piously walking around, giving this instruction. They're not seeing themselves honestly. Fourthly, the people deceive themselves by their teaching and application of idolatry. Verse 22, you who abhor Idols, do you rob temples? Understand this. If you don't trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you idolize yourself. Because you think you're going to do this on your own. You're making an idol out of yourself. You're basically saying, I don't need Christ and I don't need his righteousness. Therefore, if you think that way, you are literally involved in idolizing something that happens to be you. The fifth work is people dishonor God by their law boasting and by their law breaking. You who boast in the law, verse 23, though you're breaking the law, do you dishonor God? I mean, nobody keeps the law perfectly, and these people were bragging about their law keeping, but they knew they wouldn't keep it. They just came up with excuses. Okay, that's just a little mistake. No, it isn't. It's a violation of the law. When you haven't measured up to all of the law, you violated the law. And these people were boasting about the law and how they're keeping the law made them right with God, but they were not saying, you know, I'm guilty of breaking it. And sixthly, they hurt other people by their blasphemy. Verse 24, for the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Religious hypocrites hurt other people. They have a negative effect on the world. 
And Paul quotes two Old Testament passages here, Isaiah 52, 5, Ezekiel 36, 18 to 24. In Isaiah 52, he refers to blaspheming God by the heathen who persecuted God's nation Israel. In other words, their persecution of Israel was blasphemy against God. In Ezekiel, it refers to the terrible testimony Israel had with the heathen nations. The testimony was blasphemy against God. So what Paul is saying here, you proud religious people are the cause of other people not being right with God. You know, it's still true today. I mean, when you talk to people about being right with the Lord, lots of times they'll point to proud religious people and you go, well, who wants to be like them? And who would want to be like them? They put down people that are right with God. They put down people that have a real serious commitment to the scriptures. And then they walk around, strut around as if they've reached some high plateau level in their relationship with God. And God says, that stuff blasphemes me. So he says, a person's guilt's not eliminated by religious heritage. A person's guilt is not eliminated by works. And a person's guilt is not eliminated by external religious rights, but by an internal righteous heart, verses 25 to 29. The conjunction four that starts verse 25 explains the point further. And what he basically says to these Jews is, you know what? It's not external religion that makes you right with God. It's internal righteousness in your heart that makes you right with God. And to use the point that they like to point to, it was that business of circumcision. The Jews loved to point to the physical right of circumcision. In fact, they would point to that issue and they would just say, there, we're connected to God because of that. Today, it's been replaced by baptism. There are people today who will truly believe we have a wonderful relationship with God because we've been baptized in water. So we really don't need what you're talking about, the righteousness of God that's only found by faith in Jesus Christ because we've been baptized in water. You know, when I used to travel, neither Mary nor I wear a wedding ring because the metal does something like break out in it. But when I traveled all over this nation, I was faithful to her without a wedding ring. I don't need a wedding ring to tell me you need to be faithful to your mate. But I stayed one time in a motel in Minneapolis. Here's a guy wearing a wedding ring, hitting on someone that wasn't his wife. Well, he's got the wedding ring on. It must mean he's really a good guy. It must mean he's really faithful to his marriage. He's wearing his wedding ring. People like me don't have a wedding ring. Must be they're not. Just the opposite. The physical wedding ring meant zero. Just like circumcision and baptism can mean zero. What's really important is the reality of the heart. And the reality of the heart that has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And Paul says in these verses, if, and he uses third class conditional if clause here, which means this isn't going to happen. So it's not reality. It isn't going to happen. Let's suppose that you had somebody who could meet all the prerequisites of the law, then circumcision might mean something. But if you don't meet all the prerequisites of the law, then circumcision cannot save you. It doesn't mean anything. 
I mean, if you broke just one commandment, you're guilty of breaking them all. Let's use the illustration we've used in Law versus Grace. You have a chain of 10 links in that chain. You're holding on to that chain for your safety. You're dangling over a cliff. How many links of that chain has to break before you're dead? One. So whatever you hold on to from the law, you're dangling and hoping that that's going to save you. Let's use the Ten Commandments, Ten Chain Links, Ten Commandments. So, did you ever covet? Ever take something that didn't belong to you in your life? Ever bend the truth? Ever not honor your father and mother? Well, one of the links just broke. You're done. Because if you break one commandment, you're guilty of all. Paul says, those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they can boast in your flesh. You see, that's what this game was. These people knew how to play this religious game, and they were going around telling people that they needed to follow them and join their religious club and their group, and they needed to be part of the Jewish religion. And he said, but you people that are promoting these things, you don't have the righteousness in your own heart, and that's where this is found, because if you're going to have the praise of God, according to verse 29, it has to be because of what's in your heart. It's inward. It's not external stuff that you do. It's in your heart. And the only way you can have the righteousness of God in your heart is to have Jesus Christ in your life. There's a great illustration that comes from the life of Jesus Christ with a guy named Nicodemus. You can read the story in John chapter 3. I mean, this guy was as religious as could be. You talk about religion. I mean, he goes to the Lord. This guy was steeped in religion. He knew the traditions. He knew the laws. And he goes to Jesus Christ, and he says, Christ says to him, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You won't even see it. Because to see the kingdom of God, you need the righteousness of God. The only way you get the righteousness of God is to have it imputed to you. And the only way to get that righteousness of God imputed to you is you believe in me. And if you don't believe in me, you don't have the righteousness of God and you will not see the kingdom of God. Now you may be a person here today and... Boy, you've gone through the training. You may have some pretty good knowledge of the Bible. And you got real good feelings about yourself. You really feel positive about yourself. And you may have been baptized in water. And certainly we're going to partake a communion this morning, which is a wonderful service designed to illustrate the only place you can get the righteousness of God. But in any case, you may have been baptized in water and you've been taking communion. That's all good and well in some of those things. But you need to understand this. That will never get you into heaven. What we need to get into heaven is the imputed righteousness of God. You can't get that by religion. You can't get that by works. You get that from Jesus Christ. And when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are given, given everlasting life.
May we pray. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, why not take care of that right now, right where you sit? Just pray something like this. God, I'm a sinner. I know it. And I thank you that Jesus Christ can give me life and give me righteousness. And I invite him to do it right now. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. We go through these passages, Lord, and it stirs our own minds. It convicts us. It brings us all under conviction here, if we're honest. And we're grateful for grace, Lord. Oh, how we are grateful for grace. And we are certainly grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.